This is one of the most inflammatory texts in the entire New Testament. Did you hear James's call to the rich? Be miserable, weep, howl, mourn. Whatever language you want to use, look at five different translations. There will be different words there. But all of them call people to feel really bad and to demonstrate it through outward expression as they come to realize that the hope that they have put in their wealth will do nothing for them when they stand before God. James's tone is very, very harsh. So we might ask, who is James talking to here? Over and over again in this letter, he's called people his brothers and sisters. Even, even when he said some hard things, he said it very compassionately and tenderly and convincingly, Well, here he unloads on them. So who are the rich people? I have spent too many minutes, hours, reading about who the rich people might be this week. So I'm not going to walk you through all of that. I'm just going to give you my conclusion. I think that the rich people are unbelievers. I think that they are non-Christians. And James is writing at them, but he's writing for the Christians. Because you might think about it this way. If James is writing to unbelievers, then why is he writing in a letter to believers? Well, I think he's saying something about them and kind of to them, those who are outside of the church, for the benefit of those who are inside the church. So if you are following along our Bible reading plan that some of us are doing, we've been in Isaiah, and in this prophecy, this letter for Israel, there are large portions of judgment against Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. It's warning of judgment to those foreign nations who will never read this letter, but for God's people who will hear it. I think this is what's going on. In James chapter 2, we encountered a warning to Christians that they should not show favoritism to the wealthy. They're tempted to say, let us find our flourishing and our life and our happiness by kind of brown-nosing the rich, by hitching our cart to their horse. Well, Israel tried to do that all the time. God gave them judgments through foreign nations, like Assyria, and they said, well, maybe we can find profitable life and flourishing by going back to Egypt. So included in a prophecy to Israel was warning about how Egypt will be destroyed. Well, in this case where Christians might think, life as a Christian is really, really hard. Let me get in with the rich people, and they'll make my life easier. God's saying, don't go down that road, because their life is going to come to nothing. So it's a word to them, and should any wealthy materialists, unbelievers, hear this, they ought to repent. But it's more for Christians to listen to. And I think James wants Christians to hear two things. Number one, As I've already said, he wants them to recognize that they cannot throw in their lot with the rich. Don't be tempted by their lifestyle, their ways. It's deceptive. It's a lie. It's only going to bring misery and judgment. I think that's probably what we need to hear the most in this room. Because all of us are tempted towards materialism. But the reality is that for most Christians and most of the history of the church, the temptation wasn't just towards materialism, and it wasn't really a temptation. It it was this sense that God had abandoned them, 
and that injustice would prevail on earth even though Christ the King reigned from the dead and proclaimed peace and justice. So for them, it was a word of hope. It was a word of encouragement that even though you are being oppressed by the wealthy now, they are not going to stand on the day of judgment. It's what we read in Psalm 1 and 2. They will experience the wrath of God and you in your sacrifice for Christ, in living like him, in poverty, in oppression, you will be vindicated. So it's a message of hope. We'll return to that in a little bit. But know that James is trying to warn against materialism and he's trying to warn against lack of hope, letting us know that God is on the side of his people. Now before we go on though, I I need to make one clarification. Whenever we read texts of scripture that deal with money, we can get into this bad habit of hearing only that text of scripture when we think about money and possessions. So at the end of the day, you might walk away thinking, I need to sell everything that I own and actually to be poor equals to be godly. You know, you might hear this and say, to have possessions is to be sinful, so therefore to get rid of all possessions is to be godly. That's not what James is saying. We need to hear the whole of what the Bible says about wealth and possessions, and we need to avoid the error that some Christians make when they come to this text and they condemn anyone who has money, anyone who has possessions. Um, That's not what the Bible is doing. When the Bible speaks negatively about money, it speaks negatively about worshiping money or loving money or desiring money at the expense of living for God. So the Apostle Paul, for instance, warns that the love of money rather than money itself is the root of all kinds of evil. The problem isn't money or possessions, it's our hearts. So the biblical authors condemn those who idolize money. They don't condemn those who have it. In fact, read the New Testament letters, and over and over again, the people who get listed at the end of Paul's letters, who he's expressing thanks for, these are wealthy landowners who own the buildings that the churches are meeting in. So I think we need a different take on money. I appreciate the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters and papers from prison. When he's cut off from everything that he has, he writes this, when it comes to money, One should find and love God in what God directly gives us. If it pleases God to allow us to enjoy an overwhelming earthly happiness, then one shouldn't be more pious than God and allow this happiness to be gnawed away through arrogant thoughts and challenges and wild religious fantasy that is never satisfied with what God gives. What a sentence. When God gives us possessions and money, We should find and love God in what he gives us. Bonhoeffer, in prison though, when God took away that happiness, do you know what he did? Over and over, read his letters, over and over, he writes to his parents and his family members saying, hey, I know of this needy Christian, will you give them this selection from my library? Will you give them this money from my bank account? And he had no greater joy than to give away that wealth because he didn't love the wealth. He loved the God who gave him wealth and the God who gave him prison that ended up in execution. That's the take we have to have on money as we come to texts like this. So I don't want to soften James's warning against loving money, but I do want us to 
think rightly about money and possessions. So we don't give our hearts to it. We don't idolize it. But the problem is not with money or wealth or possessions, but with our hearts that idolize these things that are otherwise good and joyous gifts from God. So what's the protection from that? Well, I think this sermon, this text, will protect us from idolizing money, from becoming materialistic. James begins by warning us of the sin of materialism. Materialism produces misery. Wealth and possessions overpromise and underdeliver. The advertisements on your television, those ads that pop up on your Instagram feeds and your Facebook feeds and whatever else, the billboards that you see, they overpromise and underdeliver. They always produce misery. So even though they promise, even though they give you a forecast of wealth and comfort and happiness, they can't deliver on it. So James pulls back the veneer of happiness and he shows what's actually going to happen. He says, come now, listen, pay attention, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming. So these miseries are coming. So future tense, they are coming upon you. But then, curiously, he goes on to describe miseries in the present tense. They're already here. Your wealth has rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and so on. So there's a misery that's both future and present. There's a misery of the future that breaks into the present already. All you need to do is pull up the internet and type in, can money buy you happiness? And you're going to find survey after survey, study after study, that shows that some of the most wealthy people are the most miserable. The misery of the future breaks into the present. It's just a matter of time. It's because wealth always overpromises and underdelivers. I think what James is getting at here is that wealth positions itself like an elixir of life something that will give you freedom and flourishing and happiness. But inside, that bottle is filled with poison. But it's a kind of poison that makes you feel good in a moment. It like warms your belly a little bit and and you start to feel a little happier. But what you don't know is that actually it's killing you and you keep drinking it and it's going to cause you to die. It won't bring you happiness in life and flourishing. That's the picture of wealth that James gives us here. Now, you and I need to be cautious because I think sometimes when we hear warnings about future judgment, we think, well, I'm just going to enjoy it while it lasts. This poison tastes good. It makes me feel good right now. I'm just going to keep drinking. And if it gets me someday, you know, I'm rolling the dice. That's fine. You know, this is how Hezekiah responded to the words of judgment that the Lord gave him when he said that after your lifetime, Israel's going to go into exile This is what Hezekiah said to Isaiah. This is a good word from the Lord. And then there's insight into what he was thinking. He said this because he thought he would have peace and security in his lifetime. I'm afraid that when we hear warnings about wealth and loving wealth, we think, well, my money's doing it for me right now, so I'm going to just keep doing it. Maybe I'll have peace and security in my lifetime. But that is not the case because misery breaks into the future. You can't put off that judgment. You can't put off that misery. It's here already. How is it here? Well, James shows us 
first that materials deteriorate and they fail to deliver. This is what I've already been saying, but listen to that language. Your wealth has rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. Possessions go bad. Materials break. That's frustrating, but that's reality. How many of you have saved up your money to go get that thing, and because you were so excited to use it, you didn't read the instructions, and then you broke it, and it's not covered by the manufacturer's warranty? You know, kids do this on Christmas Day when they, like, try to rip that, like, chintzy plastic toy that looks cool out of the packaging, but it has, like, 10 zip ties on it, and they break the plastic in their haste to get to it because they think it will give them happiness. So what happens to adults when we spend our money on nice homes and we don't realize that we didn't understand that the plumbing has been clogged with all sorts of things over the last 50 years, and now we're dropping 10K on digging out that pipe and putting in a new one. Our things rot. They deteriorate. They fail to deliver. For that reason, they can't make us happy. Money can't satisfy us because it cannot satisfy us. Possessions won't make us happy because they cannot make us happy. They're all temporary. They're all going away. They can be wiped out in a moment. I was listening to the news this week as Hurricane Ian, I think that's the name, hit Florida, and there was this guy who stayed in his house, all concrete, like built to last. But he's, he's watching full houses float by his third-story window. In one instant, a whole life's striving crumbles apart and floats away. Those instances are parables that God wants us to learn from. When you read the news and you see these possessions scattered everywhere, be reminded that that could be your possessions too. That whatever you're living for, chasing for in this life, it will go away in no time. So it's no good pursuing happiness through them. That's one misery. These things go away. They're temporary. But there's another misery that's present and future, and that is that our material possessions, our wealth, our money, accuses us and it consumes us. Wealth and money accuse and consume you. You may be hearing that and crinkling your forehead. It needs some explanation. James says in verse 3, their corrosion will be a witness against you. So first, they accuse you. What does it mean for our wealth to accuse us? I think ultimately that accusation comes as we stand before Christ and we've hoarded treasures on this earth and done nothing for him. And we stand before him with the tally of our bank account in the pile of our possessions and in all of his splendor and grandeur that makes that stuff look so dim, so plastic. Our stuff accuses us because what we've invested in proves to be a bad investment. This is the language that James uses. So he just said, your gold and silver are corroded. They're rusted, some translations will say, and that rust is a witness against you. So this is what he's getting at. Imagine that you just bought a vehicle. You purchased a used vehicle. You got on Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist. You found a steal of a deal. And um, you don't know anything about cars. You just like how they look. And this one looks good. So you buy it. You drop the cash. You think you made, made out well on it. And then um, you drive it to church, and 
you start talking to Luke over here who works on cars, and you're telling him how great the car is, and he kind of hears the brand name, and he's like, oh, I don't know. Let me look at it. So he walks out there with you, and he gets down, and he pokes around a little bit, and he announces to you, you bought a lemon. He announces to you that what looked like a beautiful car, like when he stuck his head underneath, he saw that the whole frame has been spray-painted, but that, that it's rusted and falling apart, and probably the, the frame will go before the engine does, and probably the frame will go next time you slam your door. Because last time you did, there's that telltale sign of the flaky rust that's lined the bottom of your car. That rust acts as a witness against you. It testifies that you made a bad investment, a bad purchase. You made a foolish choice. When we stand before Christ and all of our money is piled beside of us. When all of our possessions are there, in the light of Christ, they witness to us that we made a bad investment. And piling up those investments, hoarding the money, only increases the strength of the witness against us. So our material possessions, when we give ourselves over to them and hoarding them, they act as a witness against us, but they also consume us. So he goes on, they, they will eat your flesh like fire. That's a gnarly image. Our possessions will eat our flesh like fire. You need to hang with me here. It will be worth it. Do you know what a homonym is? It's, it's a word that, um, you know, word that is actually multiple words, but the, the same spelling. So for example, B-O-W, bow, is a homonym. And, you know, linguists debate, is this the same word with different definitions or are these different words? Whatever the case is, it's the same letters that mean different things. So it could be a bow like that thing on your Christmas package. Or it could be a bow like the thing that an archer pulls. Or it could be a bow like the front of a ship. Or, or in the verb form, it could be bow as in like bending over. The, they all look the same, but they mean very different things. Well, the word in Greek here for rust or corrosion, whatever your translate take translation does with it. it. It can mean rust and corrosion, or it can mean poison. And James is doing something very clever that we miss because we're not all reading Greek. He, he's saying that it rusts, it breaks down, and it doesn't last, and it acts as a witness against you, but it's also a poison that will consume you. Like that sharp, biting poison, it consumes you, it consumes your flesh like fire. This is the exact same language he used for the sins of the tongue, isn't it? You know, it's like a fire, a world of iniquity. Your tongue is a deadly poison. Well, in the same way, the problem isn't with speech, but with what our heart does with speech. Here, it, the problem isn't really with wealth, but what our hearts do to wealth, and then what that does in turn to us. It's like we ignite possessions and money with our worship. It catches on fire, and then it will consume us. The more that we collect, the more poison we drink, the hotter the fire that consumes our flesh. I think there's an eschatological picture, end times picture, that's here. But isn't this also true with our material possessions in this day, when we worship them and love them? And it shows up in a bunch of small, tiny ways but it consumes us. It consumes our time as we have to put in more hours at work so we can buy the next good thing. 
It consumes our relationships when we blow up in anger when someone touches our stuff, and especially when they break it. It consumes our concentration when we can't think about anything else as we check that Amazon delivery notification to see exactly where our package is. So the whole day we live for waiting for the package, and then it gets there, and they give us the wrong item. Our worship of possessions consumes us in every way, and it gives us a lower quality of life. Don't you see that? And what are just hints of this in this life will be unavoidable in the next. Our wealth is a witness against us, but it also consumes us. So giving ourselves to wealth and possessions, worshiping it, is utterly foolish. That's the point that James makes with this final phrase. You have stored up treasures in the last days. Now, this probably calls to mind Jesus' words where he tells you, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where none of that happens. I think James is grabbing onto that language and he's riffing on it and taking it in a little bit of a different direction. He's saying You are living in the last days. Christ could return at any time, and you're investing in things that will have no value as soon as Christ's kingdom economy replaces our world's value system. Here's the illustration I want to use for this. If you remember from history, back in the days of the Civil War, as like 11 states created their own nation or tried to, the Confederate States of America, well, wars cost money, So they started printing their own money. So previously, everything was in gold and silver or bartering. So they printed money that was really just a a note of promise saying, six months after we win, after we, you know, finish this thing and we get all the North's gold, we'll pay you out the equivalent of what this dollar bill is worth. Well, as the war progressed on, they revised the legislation and they were saying like, well, two years after we win, we'll pay this out. And their dollar kept decreasing in value. And eventually, you know, they knew this money is worth nothing. It couldn't buy anything. Well, imagine somebody saying, I know that the South is going to win. I know the Confederate Army is going to win, so I'm going to hoard all the money that I can. I, I am going to collect all the Confederate dollar bills. I'll sell my house. I'll sell everything I've got. I'm like that wise guy buying the field that has treasure in it. And on the day that a peace treaty is signed, This guy goes and he sells all of his possessions to get all of the Confederate money in the world. How foolish would he be to invest in that economy, that economic system in the last days of the war? Well, how foolish are we to invest in our world's value system in the last days? This stuff will be nothing when Christ returns. It's foolish to store up our treasures in the last days. So how do we respond to the reality that materialism breeds misery? Well, I think it's patently obvious. Don't give your heart to money and wealth and possessions. Doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a kid and you see all the other toys that your friends have, that's not going to make you happy. Those things are going to break. You know, they might be fun for a while, but I can think of every toy I've ever owned, and guess what? I don't own them now. Teens. Buying the best in-brand style of clothing, that's not going to make you cool for long because those fads change. And the older you get, the faster they change. 
Oh, my cousin is like 15 years younger than me. She's a Gen Zer. Last time I saw her, she was telling me everything that's uncool about me because I'm a millennial. And I'm thinking, I'm very cool because I'm a millennial. Fads and styles and possessions, they all go out of style. Don't give your heart over to those things. Don't allow your lack of it to make you feel like your life is miserable. And don't let having it make you feel like you finally attained something. Adults, as you pursue buying homes and cars and setting up your retirement funds, don't cling to your wealth and possessions. Don't make that all that you're about. Because when we cling to these things, when we worship them, when we make them everything, we think they'll make us become something. But the reality is that in worshiping them, we become robbed of what we ought to and can be in Jesus Christ. We become poor. We don't become wealthy. I want to say to those of you who might identify yourselves as the older generation among us, approaching retirement, in retirement, don't adopt our materialistic worldview that says your retirement should be all about you where you hang out with the possessions and money you've accumulated your whole life. Don't live for comfort. Live for Christ. Let goods and kindred go to serve God, to serve the church, to serve others. I want to say to you retired people, some of you, maybe God wants you to think about living off your retirement, not in Minneapolis or in Florida, but in Guam, serving with Rachel and Mel. I mean, you get island life. Your retirement money just won't go as far as you might want it to. Wherever you go in your retirement, go in the name of Christ and serve him there. Don't go in the name of the American dream. Serve Christ in whatever stage of life you are in, and don't give your money, your, your heart to money in possessions, regardless of what's going on in the economy, regardless of how profitable you feel right now. Ultimately, if you do, you'll only find misery. The sin of materialism produces misery for the self, but it also produces misery for other people. Materialism motivates exploitation. So James gets that in the next verses. He says, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You've fattened your hearts. You've gorged yourself on everything you can get out of these people in the day that you slaughter them, in the day of slaughter. You condemn, you've murdered the righteous. It's hard to know how much of a realistic situation this was for James's listeners, or if this is James just adopting the hyperbolic prophetic language of the Old Testament, but I don't think it really matters. He may be referring to texts like Deuteronomy, um, where God says don't withhold the, the wages of the laborers because they depend on it. That's where they get their food. Maybe he's creating uh, an imaginary situation out of that text. Whatever the case might be, I think James wants us to understand that when we give our hearts to money and wealth, it's only a short second later when we start to exploit people on our way to get it. When we start to oppress people and step on them, crush them on our way to find our own prosperity. 
Certainly some civilizations have done this more clearly than others. So in the ancient Greek world, like 120 years after James is writing, you have uh, this ruling class who's eating great meals while the poor are starving because they've, the wealthy have put the grain under lock and key because they can export it and get greater profit than if they sell it to the poor people. So poor people were starving and dying. Um, this is depicted really well in Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games, where the citizens of the capital of Pan Am are gorging themselves on food and then drinking from a vial that will allow them to vomit so then they can eat more food while everyone else in the country are starving and living on really meager rations. I think that's a way that the wealthy can exploit and kill and murder the poor, not directly, but indirectly through the way that they behave. I don't want to try to analyze every way that the economic systems of our day do this, but I think certainly if we were to begin examining the the practices of corporations and businesses, we would understand that they're driven by love of money, the bottom line, by profit, and there are, there's exploitation of workers all over the place in our world today. So we should not think that this is a problem of the ancient world. It's a problem in our world. It's a problem in local businesses as workers are not paid well and expected to work long hours. It's found on the national level as corporations send their businesses out of country to pay people very little money instead of caring for workers here. I don't know the calculus of all of that and how people do and don't benefit, but I think we can be certain that the wealthy are still exploiting the poor just as they were in the past. I think James wants us to think particularly about the Christian poor who are exploited by the wealthy. This doesn't happen so much in our country where the wealth and poverty divide is present based on someone's commitment to Christ. In fact, for a long time in our country, it was probably the opposite. If you were a Christian, you were some of the wealthiest in society. But across the globe, Christians live in poverty because they're Christians. Christians live in poverty because they can't get a job because they believe in Christ who is not welcomed in their nation or town. I was looking at some statistics this morning that identify that over 360 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In the past year, across the globe, that we know of, 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers in the past year were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. I think these are the people that Jesus talked about who are in prison, who are poor, who are being exploited by the wealthy simply because they believe in a Christ who's not welcomed. When we read a text like this, we need to think about and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being exploited and persecuted and oppressed across the globe. At the very time that we're tempted to throw in our lot with the materialists who do this. Isn't this what James says in chapter 2 when he says, don't cater to the rich. Aren't they the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? 
Well, they might not be doing that to us in this room, but they're doing it to our family across the globe. This text is a reminder that even though those Christians are suffering now, God's thinking of them. Their cry reaches the ears of the Lord of armies. Sabaoth, his name that we sang in A Mighty Fortress, that's, that's a Lord of armies. That's what that means. That cry reaches the Lord, and on behalf of the poor, oppressed, and exploited, Christ is raising an army to bring justice and judgment that they may never taste in this life. It's hard for us to talk about God's judgment sometimes because we live in a cushy place. But Christians who have been oppressed and harmed find great hope in that. And we ought to add our cries to theirs. We ought to be like those saints in Revelation under the altar crying out, Lord, how long will Christians be persecuted and discriminated against because they believe in Christ? In our materialism, we forget about them. In our desire to be approved by the popular, to gain the wealth of the wealthy, we turn away from them. But God turns to the very places that we turn away from. And he cares about these people, and so should we. To grasp the intensity of how much God cares about them. Imagine a situation where maybe someone is traveling overseas, and they get caught in that land. And somehow, someone gets the ears of the President of the United States, and he commissions a reconnaissance mission that costs millions of dollars to bring this one individual back. The armed forces go out and bring them back and bring them to safety. God's raising a whole army. The Lord of hosts of armies is going to come to the aid of his people. That's great hope for them, and it's great warning for us that we align ourselves with God in his armies instead of the wealthy who oppress the poor. So materialism is sinful. It brings about sin. It produces misery. It motivates exploitation. But ultimately, materialism ignites God's resistance. Materialism ignites God's resistance. We've already sensed that, haven't we? in the call to weep and mourn. We sense that in this recognition that the Lord of armies hears his people crying out. But it's also evident in other ways in this text. When we read that final verse, or final section of verse 6, it says that you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. This conjures up an image of Christ who did not resist those who killed him. And it may be that James is identifying the righteous in league with Christ, who did not resist those who oppressed them. Although this issue is really difficult, I, I think that we should understand this verse a little bit differently. I think that the sentence in chapter 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous, should end with a period. And then I think that the next phrase should say, does he not resist you? This is a little bit complicated, but in the ancient Greek text, there were no punctuation markers. So you can imagine how some sentences you would have to wrestle with, is this a rhetorical question or is this a statement? Does he not resist you? Question mark. Or he does not resist you. You know, word order in Greek doesn't matter. 
So, well, it kind of does, but not in the way we do it. So, the, you know, this could be taken as a statement, the righteous, he does not resist you, or it could be taken as a question, does he, God, not resist you? I think we should take it that way for a couple reasons. Number one, we've observed James's penchant for rhetorical questions over and over again in James. Over and over, he asks questions that we know the answer to. But I think in the larger context, we should recall James's quote of Proverbs 3.34 in chapter 4, verse 6, where he says that God gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then what James does is he goes on to give three illustrations of prideful people who will be met with God's resistance. The first illustration of prideful people comes for those who judge God's law and who judge other people and try to replace God as the lawgiver and judge. Well, James says, no, God's going to resist you because there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. So that was example number one that meets God's resistance. And then example number two are those who plan their life without thought for God's providence, who don't care about their, his provision. They say, we're going to go to this or that place and sell this or that thing and be this profitable. We'll stay there that long. These are practical atheists who ignore God. They boast in their arrogance and God will resist them. So they ought to say if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Well, that's example number two. I think this is example number three. This is the example of those who reject God altogether and oppress God's people and worship money. Won't God resist them? The answer is yes. God and all of his armies will resist them. When we give ourselves over to money and possessions, it's not just that we're positively doing something, giving ourselves to that thing. We negatively are setting ourselves against God. This is what Jesus gets at when he says you can't worship two masters. You can't worship God and money. This is what James is getting at when he says you can't be double-minded. You can't be double-hearted. God wants all of your heart, and when you give it to money and possessions, you take it away from God. And it's met with his resistance. So humble yourself and instead be met with grace. So what do we do about this? Knowing that God resists those who give their hearts to money and possessions. I want to simply re-articulate what I've already said, but more in a bullet point form. First, we should recognize that God will bring about justice for his people and he will resist those who worship money. That's our starting point. What does God think about this? What is God going to do? Well, God is going to resist those who love money, and he'll bring about justice for his people. So be on God's side and pray that he will bring about justice for Christians who are suffering and persecuted and oppressed and refuse to join the side of the money lovers, the materialists who contribute to this sin. Application number two, we should repent of our materialistic tendencies. We should repent when we find ourselves giving our hearts over to money. We're not hopeless here. I think all of us have to say we've been that guy, that girl. We, we've loved money. 
So what do money lovers do? What hope is there for the money lover, for the exploiter? Jesus. Jesus is that hope. And if you doubt it, we're given proof of it in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples. The worse exploiter than the still bad exploiter. Think about Saul, who held the robes of people who murdered Christians, who killed Stephen. You've condemned, you've murdered, that's Saul. Paul is who Saul became because of the grace of God. Jesus saves murderers and condemners and exploiters. Think about that guy we sing about in Sunday school, Zacchaeus, this tax collector who took advantage of people. He exploited them. And then he met Jesus, and he repented, and he changed. And he no longer gave his heart to money. Instead, his greatest joy was to give money back to those he used to exploit. Jesus gives great hope to people who used to love money. But the hope that is there is that we will give our heart to Christ, that we'll follow after him, that we'll repent, that we'll take up the cost of discipleship as we bear the cross of discipleship. Because the danger is that we won't follow Christ. The danger is that we'll say we have hope in Jesus, we'll even come to him, but we won't follow after him. We'll be like that rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus essentially more or less said, stop loving money. And this guy couldn't do it. So he went away sorrowful, he went away in misery, and he'll face misery on the final day. So we have great hope, but it's a hope that comes with a cost. The cost of separating ourselves from money and our love of it and giving our hearts over to God. Application number three, we should live our lives in service of Christ and his kingdom rather than our own. Instead of building our own kingdom, we should build Christ's kingdom. Instead of giving our entire lives for the pursuit of money and possessions and finding our hope and happiness in them, we should give our lives for the pursuit of Christ's kingdom. That quote attributed to Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the answer. Don't give your life to things that you're going to lose. Give up your life for things that you'll never lose. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. Let's find our life, not in money, not in possessions, but in Christ. May he help us do this. Let's pray. Father, we come with empathy and compassion for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are experiencing persecution and oppression because of materialists who care more about their own kingdom than anything else. And we also come with a spirit of repentance, confessing that all too often we have operated like them, giving our hearts to money and possession. We pray that you would allow us to see the misery that comes in that, and that you would replace our heart love for money with a heart love for Christ. That you take away the misery that promises life and give us the Christ who can make good on that promise and give us life forevermore. Would you allow us to repent where we need to, to find hope where we need to, but in it all, would you allow us to have a heart for Christ and his kingdom that finds our hope in him alone?
In Christ we pray. Amen.